0: Welcome. We hope you enjoy this recording from Christ City Church, based in Dublin, Ireland. For more podcasts and information on the church, please visit ChristCityChurch.ie. Thank you for listening. Hey, I'm Maria. I'm going to be reading from 2 Samuel, chapters 21, and then flipping over to chapter 24. So starting in 21, in verse 1. During the reign of David... There was a famine for three successive years, so David sought the face of the Lord. The Lord said, it's on account of Saul and his blood-stained house. It's because he put the Gibeonites to death. The king summoned the Gibeonites and spoke to them. Now, the Gibeonites were not a part of Israel, but were survivors of the Amorites. The Israelites had sworn to spare them, but Saul and his zeal for Israel and Judah had tried to annihilate them. David asked the Gibeonites, what shall I do for you? How shall I make an atonement so that you will bless the Lord's inheritance? The Gibeonites answered him, We have no right to demand silver or gold from Saul or his family, nor do we have the right to put anyone in Israel to death. Again, the anger of the Lord burned against Israel, and he incited David against him, saying, Go and take a census census of Israel and Judah. So the king said to Joab and the army commanders with him, Go throughout the tribes of Israel, from Dan to Beersheba, and enroll the fighting men, so I know how many there are. But Joab replied to the king, May the Lord your God Almighty multiply the troops a hundred times over, and may the eyes of my lord the king see it. But why does my lord the king want to do such a thing? The king's word, however, overruled Joab and the army commanders, so they left the presence of the king to enroll the fighting men of Israel. After crossing the Jordan, they camped near Arar, south of the town in the gorge, and went through to Gad and on to Jazir. They went to Gilead and the region of Tat-Tam-Hadshi, and on to Dan-John and around towards Sidon. Then they went toward the fortress of Tyre and all the towns of the Hivites and the Canaanites. Finally, they went on to Beersheba and the Negev of Judah. After they had gone through the entire land, they came back to Jerusalem at the end of nine months and 20 days. Joab reported that the number of the fighting men to the king in Israel, there were 800,000 able-bodied men who could handle a sword, and in Judah, 500,000. David was conscience-stricken after he had counted the finding men, and he said to the Lord, I have sinned greatly in what I have done. Now, Lord, I beg you, take away the guilt of your servant. I have done a very foolish thing. Before David got up to the next morning, the word of the Lord had come to Gad the prophet, David's seer. Go and tell David. This is what the Lord says. I'm giving you three options. Choose one of them for me to carry out against you. So Gad went to David and said to him, shall there come on you three years of famine in your land or three months of fleeing from your enemies will they pursue you or three days of plague in your land? Now then think it over and decide how I should answer the one who sent me. David said to Gad, I am in deep distress. Let us fall into the hands of the Lord for his mercy is great. But do not let me fall into human hands. So the Lord sent a plague on Israel from that morning until the end of the time designated. And 70,000 of the people from Dan to Beersheba died. When the angel stretched out his hand to destroy Jerusalem, the Lord relented concerning the disaster. And said to the angel who was afflicting the people, Enough, withdraw your hand. The angel of the Lord was at the threshing floor of Arunah the Jebusite. When David saw the angel who was striking down the people, he said to the Lord, I have sinned. I, the shepherd, have done wrong. Those are but sheep. What have they done? Let your hand fall on me and my family. On that day, Gad went to David and said to him, "Go up and build an altar to the Lord on the threshing floor of Aruna the Jebusite." So David went up as the Lord had commanded through Gad. When Aruna looked and saw the king and his officials coming toward him, he went out and bowed down before the king with his face to the ground. Aruna said, Why has my lord the king come to his servant? To buy your threshing floor. David answered, So I can build an altar to the Lord that the plague on the people may be stopped. Aruna said to David, Let my lord the king take whatever he wishes and offer it up. Here are the oxen for the burnt offering, and here are threshing sledges and ox yokes for the wood. Your majesty, Aruna, gives all this to the king. Aruna also said to him, may the Lord your God accept you. But the king replied to Aruna, no, I insist on paying you for it. I will not sacrifice to the Lord my God burnt offerings that cost me nothing. So David bought the threshing floor and the oxen and paid 50 shekels of silver for them. David built an altar to the Lord there and sacrificed burnt offerings and fellowship offerings. Then the Lord answered his prayer on behalf of the land and the plague on Israel was stopped.
1: Thank you, Maria. Hello, everyone. My name is Andrew. For those of you who don't know me, I'm currently in fourth year in UCD, studying engineering. And unfortunately, I've had to take this summer off um, to to do a work placement. So please do feel pity on me. I don't have my usual um, four-month summer. So yeah, please, please. You should feel bad for me. Now, let me challenge you to think of the biggest fall from grace you know. For me, it's this guy coming up on your screen, Lance Armstrong. We all know the story. It's an amusing, it's amusing that the autobiography was actually entitled, It's Not About the Bike. Um, we, we actually found that out to be very much true with Lance. From the highs of sporting glory, he was cut down to a shame cheat. And now we see fit, similar falls from grace in the two passages that have been read to us today. So let me pray first to open. Dear Lord, please open our our minds, our hearts, our ears, our eyes um, to whatever you have to teach us today. In your name I pray, amen. Amen. So yeah, both stories follow the same outline here. So we're going to look at the first half of chapter 21 and the entirety of chapter 24. So keep your Bibles open, keep flipping between them. So they follow this pattern, sin, inquiry, execution, surprise. So let's start the first half of chapter 21. So there had been a famine in Israel for three years. David asked God why this is, and God replies that it is because of Saul and his family killing a certain group of people called the Gibeonites. Now, looking at verse 2, the author informs us that the Gibeonites were survivors from the Canaanites who were displaced when the Israelites entered the promised land. You can go back to Joshua chapter 9. to to see the details of how they tricked the Israelites into granting them immunity. Saul's rage, as shown in the first book of Samuel, lands him in trouble on a number of occasions. And this time, it's led to the slaughtering of a number of Gibeonites, whom Israel had sworn this oath before God. Next, we have the inquiry. But here, David does not ask God how to fix this situation. Rather, he goes straight to the Gibeonites. He consults the victims. He asked them, how can I make atonement? After David pretty much promises them in verse 4 that he will do whatever they ask of him, the Gibeonites ask for the lives of seven of Saul's descendants to atone for the injustices that have occurred. Uh, Verse 6 tells us that these executions were to happen before the Lord, not as an act of vengeance, but as justice. But remember that this act is requested by the Gibeonites, not by God. And next we have the execution. We see a real contrast here, though, between Saul and David, where Saul totally disregards the covenants of the past. David honors one he made with his dear friend Jonathan, the son of Saul, and spares his son. The respite is short, however, and the writer does not shy away from the details as to how these deaths happened, where they happened. And what the aftermath is. We then have a few surprises. Firstly, we witness Rispa, the mother of the two of two of the executed sons, the aunt of the rest, gather the corpses of her dead relatives and watch over them for months, fighting off predators, protecting the decaying bodies. So this act reaction shows the sheer grief this atonement has caused. It's not sanitized, it's not clean. It's horrible. It's sickly. Additionally, we see David, in spite of all Saul has done for him, gather up his family's remains and give them a proper, dignified and respectful burial. Finally, God answers prayer for the land. We assume here that the acts carried out have made right the wrongs and he ends the famine. Now we flip over to chapter 24. And we begin this passage a little bit more perplexed. Chapter 21 details the reason for God's anger, but here we're not given any clues. Additionally, God incites, meaning to encourage or to stir up David to carry out a census in verse 1. Now, in 1 Chronicles chapter 21, it tells us that it was in fact Satan who incited David. And this may seem wrong and backwards, God using Satan, but... But remember that time and time again, God uses evil for his ultimate good. Think of Joseph being sold into slavery by his own brothers, only to become the ruler of Israel and to save his family from starvation. And most importantly, think of the cross where the greatest evil was done to bring about the greatest, greatest goodness. And David orders his army to carry out a census of the men able to fight for him. When his commanders return with the figures, David is sick with guilt. And in verse 10 cries out, I've sinned greatly in what I've done. Now, Lord, I beg you, take away the guilt of your servant. I've done a foolish thing. It's also a bit perplexing to understand why, why David has sinned here. At first glance, there, there doesn't seem to be anything wrong with t- carrying out a census. But look closely. Joab asked the king in verse 3, But why does my lord, the king, want to do such a thing? Was this just a vain act on David's behalf? Did it show a lack of trust in God? Or maybe that the powerful David did not need God with all these fighting men? We can speculate, but we do not know. David responds to his wrongdoing by turning to God in verse 10. The prophet Gad appears the next day, and he lays out, Three options of punishment from God for David. We have three years of famine, three months of fleeing from David's enemies, or three days of plague. Now, David realizes he's in no position to make the right decision of which option to pick. So he has faith, trusts in God to be merciful. He knows now that all his fighting men will make no difference here. And then we have execution. As of chapter 21, we find these next few verses troublesome and gruesome disgusting even. David seems to have done all the right things, admitted his wrongs, begged for forgiveness and mercy. But God still punishes, killing a vast number of individuals. To us, this seems wrong, wretched. Why would a good God do this? Hold on to that thought. And again, we have some surprises. Firstly, God is merciful. Verse 16 tells us, the Lord relented concerning the disaster and said to the angel who was afflicting the people, enough, withdraw your hand. He does this at a particular place, the, thres- the threshing floor of Aruna the Je- Jesuit. we will come back to this place later. David confesses his sin again. I have sinned. I, the shepherd, have done wrong. These are but sheep. What have they done? Let your hand fall on me and my family. David's willingness to lay down his life as the good shepherd is both admirable and remarkable. Who's that remind you of? Now the last surprise is that David turns down the offer of a burning sacrifice that cost him nothing. He knows that without a cost there really is no sacrifice. So there are the two stories but why does this matter? What does this have to do with me? You know, after these two whirlwinds of violent, bloody, and deeply saddening tales, you're probably sitting there on your couch somewhere in Ireland or abroad, and, and you're wondering, well, what does this mean to me today? What if, what if you're not even a Christian? What, what does this have to do with me? Let me give you three learnings and three applications you can take from these great passages. So we have three learnings, the inadequacy of humans, that sin is radioactive, the brutal but life-giving gifts of the torment. And we have three applications to seek God with humility, make inquiries, and look to the great promise keeper. So the first learning from these stories is the glaring inadequacy of both Saul and David. Personally, these men were both a mess. Saul, the man who was ahead above everyone else, the first king of Israel, becomes a violent man whose erratic rage led to the slaughter of seven of his descendants. David, known as the man after God's own heart, the shepherd boy turned national hero, becomes a murderous coward whose sinfulness leads to the countless deaths of his own people. Now, in chapter 24, David realizes his faults. The great warrior King David lowered to a position of distress and indecision. The Israelites in 1 Samuel chapter 8 demanded a king to be appointed so that they could be like all the other nations. But neither Saul nor the mighty David were up to the mark. Here he hands the decision over to God, trusting in his mercy. This shows us that we ourselves can never sort out our own sin, our own wrongdoing. There is nothing we can do to make it even. And like the same way that no matter the number of apologies Lance Armstrong gives, the charitable works he does There is no way to right the wrongs of his past. And it's the same for us. No matter our kindness, our charity, our consideration, sin is the great equalizer. We're all in the exact same boat, heading the exact same way, towards the cliffs of God's righteous wrath. We also learn that sin is radioactive. In both stories, it's clear that the sin of an individual does not just affect that person. As it it was not only Lance Armstrong who suffered the repercussions of his wrongdoings, but rather his wife, his children, his parents, his family, his sponsors, his charity. So it is with Saul and his descendants. So it is with David and his people. Now, this this principle lies at the very heart of our own salvation. Look at what Paul says in Romans chapter 5, verse 12. Therefore, just as sin entered the world through one man and death through sin, And in the same way, death came to all people because all sinned. Adam, our representative, sinned and condemned us, his people, his followers, his descendants to death. And on another note, remember that Saul's sin did not just affect his seven descendants who were slaughtered, but their friends, their families, their wives and children as well. And we see this with Rizpah. In our lives a husband's porn and sexual sin addiction will have a negative effect on his wife. A teenager's hateful and angry words when lashed out can deeply wound a mother. The sin affects us, it affects our relationships, but ultimately it affects God. God cannot have a hint of unholiness enter into his presence and we see in the days of Moses that those who did enter God's presence as unholy, we're obliterated. Our sin separates us from our Creator, our Father, our God. Thirdly, we learn about the brutal but life-giving gift of atonement. We find it hard to see the angry side of God. We often today see anger as a bad thing, but anger is in fact a good thing. It can be good. It is good to be angry at a child when they run across a busy street blindly after you telling them time and time again that they must look both ways first but for some reason we all find it strange that God would be angry at us we don't see our sin for what it is a crime worthy of the death sentence we don't think that although we admit we're not perfect we're not like Saul but Paul tells us clearly in Romans the wages of sin is death we are all a bunch of dirty, stinking, rotten sinners. Behind our beautiful masks, our happiness, our wealth, our money, is a rotting rotting corpse. As justice must be served in a court of law in order for the law to be good, God's righteous good anger must lead to punishment. David is instructed by God through Gad the prophet to go up and build an altar to the Lord on the threshing floor of Arunah the Jebusite. Arunah offers to give everything needed for the sacrifice for free, but David rejects this offer. He knows that without some sort of cost, the sacrifice is null. So David makes these offerings and God stops the plague. In both stories, blood had to be spilled for the atonement to be made. And how fitting is it that in 2 Chronicles 3, verse 1, we are told that this very field, this very threshing floor, is the location where a thousand years earlier, Abraham was about to sacrifice his son Isaac, but God provided a substitute ram at the last minute. And how fitting is it that this was the very spot where David's son Solomon Went on to build the temple where, for hundreds of years, animals were sacrificed again and again to atone for the sins of Israel. How fitting is it that, that this is where David makes a sacrifice, saving the lives of many of his own people? When David saw the destruction, he cried out to God in verse 17, I have sinned, I, the shepherd, have done wrong. These are but sheep. What have they done? Let your hand fall on me. And my family. Now, a thousand years later, in John chapter 10, verse 11, Jesus says, I am the good shepherd. The good shepherd lays down his life for the sheep. He is saying, I am the son of David. I am the family of David. Let your hand fall on me. And fall it did. Not too far away from this very threshing floor. The son of Adam, of Abraham, of of David, was deserted, ridiculed, flogged, beaten, mocked, spat on, strung up on a cross, nails hammered through his hands and feet. And there was no substitute this time. This was the lamb. This was the sacrifice. This was the atonement. The death sentence was served. The wages of sin is death but thanks be to God that the living gift of God is atonement through Jesus's bloody, brutal, ugly death. David's altar is temporary, but the cross is not. So in terms of application, what do we do with these learnings? Let us seek God with humility. When we accept our total inadequacy as humans, We can seek God with humility. In chapter 21, we see a David out on his own, trying to solve the complex issues of murder and vengeance all by himself. Chapter 24 sees a very different David, who vulnerably admits his wrongdoings. He humbly hands over the responsibility of choosing a punishment to God, knowing that he was not in the position to make it. David accepted he wasn't in control. He he, he couldn't do it. So when we come to, our, to God in our daily quiet times, in worship and in prayer, let us do so with humble hearts. The same David says in Psalm 25 verse 9, that God guides the humble in what is right and teaches them in, this, in his way. I challenge you to start your days with a simple refrain when you rise in the moment. Tozer writes... For the Christian, humility is absolutely indispensable. Without it, there can be no self-knowledge, no repentance, no faith, and no salvation. Or maybe use Proverbs 18 verse 12. Before destruction, the heart of a man is haughty, and before honor is humility. Find your refrain, learn it off, and come to God in humility every day. So once we do this, we can inquire of God, but we can also make inquiries of other people. We can make it it a habit to inquire of our friends and our families. I challenge you today, after this service, ask your loved ones, ask your flatmates, whoever is there beside you. How can I do better? How can I be a better husband? What actions must I take to be a more helpful housemate? Mum, in what ways can I act godly around the house? Inquire of God, inquire of others, but inquire of yourself. Henry Ford is famed for saying, thinking is the hardest work there is, which is probably why so few engage in it. And inquiring of yourself is hard, but again, make it a habit. Grab a pen, grab some paper, and once a week ask yourself, how can I be more Christ like this week? What do I need to change? Just as we saw how sin was radioactive. Good godly living is radioactive too. You will bless your family, you will bless your friends, you will bless your city, and you will bless your God. Become inquirers. And thirdly, let us look to the great promise keeper. David remembered the covenant he made with Jonathan, modeling what it is to be a promise keeper, an outpouring of his close relationship with God, ultimate covenant maker and keeper. And as such, let us be promise keepers. We live in a world today of last-minute cancellations by text, of short-lived marriages, of broken contracts and covenants. Let's be people of our word, taking our promises seriously and sticking them out for better or for worse. If you are a Christian, look to the promises you made when you became a follower of jesus you promised to believe in his life his death his resurrection and his future return are you living like it you promised knowing the cost to pick up your cross and to follow him in thick and thin through joy and suffering through celebration and persecution are you living that out you promised to flee from sin, to set aside anything that would make you stumble. Are you keeping those promises? Let's keep our promises. If you're not a Christian, let me invite you to consider making the promise to follow to follow Jesus, to commit your life to him. It may sound odd, but please get in touch with me, get in touch with anyone on the, the church staff or the, or the welcome teams. This promise will wipe your wrongdoings clean, make you perfect and holy in God's eyes, please consider it. Remember the promises God has made us. Remember our own promises and keep being promise keepers. So there you have it. In conclusion to the sermon and our series on David, it has become abundantly clear that the greatest king of Israel, the shepherd boy turned warrior, the man after God's own heart, was deeply, deeply flawed. But he pointed towards the true king, a man that would come from a small, insignificant village, a man who worked a humble trade, a man many people saw as unfit to be king, the shepherd who actually laid down his life for his sheep, the only man who was not flawed, the only one who could truly (laughs) atone for the sins of his people. So despite human evil and weakness, God was at work in these stories, lowering the proud, exalting the humble, and raising up a future king. Let us pray. Dear Lord, thank you for the life of David. Thank you that you placed him exactly where you wanted him. Despite his numerous flaws and weaknesses, you used him to do your good work. Lord, help us learn from him. Help us jump into the scriptures, soak ourselves in the Psalms, and become men and women after your own heart, doing your good work, despite our own flaws and weaknesses. Make clear to us our own inadequacies, the deadly seriousness of our sin, And thank you for the brutal but life-giving gift of atonement. Let us cherish it, Lord. Teach us to cherish it. Help us, Lord, to seek you with humility and to become inquirers and promise keepers as you keep your promises. As Psalm 149 says, Lord, you delight in your people. You crown the humble with victory. Amen.